And, yep, your teacher will meet you in the back. Um, let's go ahead and open with a word of prayer. Lord, show us Christ. Would you open your word for us? Holy Spirit, would you shine on each word so that we may see Jesus more clearly and understand who he is and what he's done for us? Lord, uh, you've given your church a commission. You said, go, make disciples, teach, and baptize. And Lord, we strive as a church to do those things. And one of the things that we seem to be doing pretty well is the go part. We have a lot of people who, who move on from this church, and we pray that we have equipped them well, that we have made disciples, that we have taught them, and that they are growing in Christ. And so, Lord, this morning I want to pray for Matthew Kelly as he's heading off to college uh, to uh, an institute that will teach him the skills that he needs for the career that he will most likely excel in. Lord, thank you for Matthew's participation in our church. We pray your blessing on him as he goes. Um, Lord, help him to land well there, to get situated soon, and, and to excel in his classes. Uh, Lord, I pray that he would be a disciple of Christ in the midst of all that's around him and would continue to walk with you. And Lord, we also want to pray for Jerry and Heidi Ruth as they're landing now, finally, as they return from China, as, uh, as they are seeking um, housing and, and they have some employment in West Wendover, Nevada. Uh, Lord, we pray for uh, Heidi to find something that would bring some income in. And uh, Lord, they have been faithful missionaries of yours in China. We pray that they would be faithful missionaries of yours in Nevada as well. Uh, bless them for their, um, their humble service to you, knowing, Lord, that it's in your power that they work. And Lord, I pray that they would, uh, you would continue to meet their needs in miraculous ways, that they would have opportunity to, to um, boast in Christ alone. Lord, would you be with us now as we open your word and help us to understand, help us to see you, Jesus, uh, through the power of your spirit, for the glory of your Father. In Christ's name we ask, amen. So if you remember, I said that the Last Supper was kind of the first domino to fall in this series of events that's going to take us to the cross. And if you remember when I brought that up, I said at the time, Jesus was fully in charge of that. He had told his disciples, go and find this room, prepare it. When he got to the Last Supper, he said, I have earnestly longed to eat this meal with you. This wasn't Jesus, the hapless victim, stumbling into an arrest. This was Jesus marching towards his appointed end to the cross. And um, so then last week, after uh, the two weeks ago, we looked at the Lord's Supper. Last week, we looked at Jesus' kind of farewell discourse. He teaches his disciples. He, he talked about Peter's denial. He prophesied that one that was sitting at the table would betray him. And so now we see the next step, the next domino falls. He goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, and so when we look at this, what we're going to see in this, this garden moment is we're going to see temptation and intention. There's, there's two things that are going on. There's a temptation, there's an intention. Um, and as we look at this, I want to ask three questions. The first one is, will Judas do what he decided to do? Will Jesus do what he came to do? And will you do what you're commanded to do? So the, these, these three things in the garden, will Jesus, Judas do what he decided to do? Will Jesus do what he came to do? And will you do what you're commanded to do? And you'll see as we go through this, the, the, the power to do your part comes from the fact of these other things. So first of all, it starts, 
And he came and went out. He had been in Jerusalem celebrating the Last Supper, and he left. He went to the, to, uh, to the Mount of Olives. He came and went out, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. Um, now, my first point was, will Judas, Judas do what he decided to do? And after thorough, detailed study of the Greek underlying this text, I have determined Judas is not mentioned. You may have noticed that. So where do I get this idea that it's asking the question, will Judas do what he intended to do? Well, because it says that Jesus came and went out as was his custom. He came to the, uh, to the Mount of Olives as was his custom. This is a place he routinely went. As a matter of fact, back in chapter 21, verse 37, it said that Jesus would do this. He'd be in the temple teaching during the day, and then at night he'd go up to the Mount of Olives, and that's where he stayed. So this was his custom. This was what he routinely did. And Luke is careful to point out this is where he went. So now the question about Judas, will Judas do what he had decided to do? Remember a couple weeks ago we talked about Judas planning to betray Jesus. And the problem was the Pharisees didn't want to do it in front of the crowds because they figured the crowds are going to hate us. We've got to arrest him in private. And so this is the perfect spot for Judas to do his deal. They're at the Mount of Olives. It's nighttime. Nobody's there. They can lead a mob up there. They can arrest Jesus and take him away. And what does Jesus do? Does he go fleeing the other direction? He heads towards Bethany and stays with uh, Mary and Martha. No, as was his custom, he went to the Mount of Olives. He goes where he knows the betrayer can find him instead of fleeing. And he knows who's going to betray him. He said, the one who's going to do it, his hand is with me at the table. So he was fully aware of this. This is more of that picture of Jesus is not the hapless victim stumbling into an arrest. He is marching towards his appointed purpose. So what we've got to be thinking of here is, will Judas do what Judas has decided to do? We'll get the answer next week. I peeked ahead. Yes, he will. So just so you know, you don't have to look down. Stop looking down the page. Look back up. Um, so the point, though, I want to make here is, is Jesus knows what Judas is going to do. Jesus, uh, Jesus obeys and goes to the place that he was accustomed to going. It's a place where he can be found out. And he's not afraid to go there because he knows what he's, he's about to do. So now the next question, will Jesus do what he came to do? And so here's, here's the next section. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. So now Jesus has, knows that he has just put himself in Judas's crosshairs. He knows that by going to the garden, he is preparing for the next step which will be his arrest. And so he does what he should do, which is he prays. If Jesus prays, guess what you need to do? We need to pray. Um, Jesus is the eternally begotten Son of God, made incarnate through the Virgin Mary, and he still prays. You're not even close, and you need to pray. I need to remember to pray more. This, is, this was a challenge to me, is to pray more often. And notice what Jesus is doing. He knows what's coming next, and he still prays about it. I don't know about you, but my temptation is when I don't know what comes next, I pray a lot. When I know what's going to happen, I'm cool. I got it. 
And, and we need to not have that attitude. We need to adopt the attitude of our master and say, no, even when I know what comes next, I'm going to be praying about it. Lord, help me with this next thing that's coming up. So that's what he does. He goes there. He puts himself in the crosshairs. And it says he withdrew from them about a stone's throw. And he knelt and prayed. So Jesus, it, it's kind of an interesting measure, isn't it? A stone's throw. It, it's not he went far away from them and said, you guys stay here. I'm going to go pray by myself. And he didn't sit in the middle of them and prayed. He drew away, but he was close enough that they could observe what he was doing. So he's still with his disciples, but he's also seeking some solitude with his father. He goes a, a, an appreciable distance from his disciples, and he kneels down to pray. Um, now, I'm skipping part of it that says, he said, uh, pray, he tells them to pray. He says, pray that you may not enter into temptation. We'll get that on the third point because he mentions it twice. So we'll come back to that, I promise. But he goes and he prays, and his prayer is arresting. He says, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Now, he's not saying, I'm not thirsty. It's okay, Dad, take the cup. What does a cup mean? Is it he's looking at the cross and saying, I don't want to be crucified? That's, that's not the biblical picture of what a cup is. He's, Jesus is getting this idea of a cup from the Old Testament prophets Ezekiel in chapter 23, starting at verse 32, says, Thus says the Lord God, you shall drink your sister's cup. He's talking to Judah, and he's saying, Judah, the same thing is going to happen to you that happened to uh, Israel, the northern ten tribes. So this is how he says it. You shall drink your sister's cup that is deep and large. You shall be laughed at and held in derision, for it contains much. You will be filled with drunkenness and sorrow. A cup of horror and desolation, the cup of your sister Samaria. You shall drink it and drain it out and gnaw its shards and tear your breasts. This idea of this cup is not a glass of wine to sit and party with. It's a horrifying prospect of judgment. Judah at this point is, is struggling to survive in the land. Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians have come up against them. And what Ezekiel is saying is, you're going to wind up in the same situation the northern ten tribes did. They got taken away. It is the cup of wrath that you are about to drink because you have been so unfaithful. It's coming for you. You'll drink this cup. Isaiah says a similar thing. He's, Thus says the Lord. I'm sorry, this is in verse, uh, chapter 51, uh, verse 22. Isaiah says, Thus says the Lord, your God who pleads the cause of his people, behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath. You shall drink no more. So this, this, he, what he says is, my wrath has been poured out on you. I will take the cup of my wrath from you. So the picture of the cup is God's wrath, God's anger, God's hatred of sin. It is the full, uh, every time it's spoken of, it's talking about a cup of staggering. This isn't a light Chardonnay that you sip at a garden party. This is a, a, a drug so strong that it makes you stagger and fall over. It, it is that arresting. It is a strong drink. So this is what Jesus is looking at. And he says, Lord, if it's possible, take this cup away from me. Jesus is not a masochist. He's not saying, boy, am I looking forward to going to the cross. This is going to be great. He comes and he's, he's blatantly honest with God. Lord, I do not relish the idea of going to the cross and drinking that cup. 
So if there's any way, Father, let this go. Now, some commentators read that and say, let this cup pass from me. And they say what it means was Jesus knew that wrath was going to fall on him, but he was just asking the Father that it would then pa pass on. And that doesn't make any sense because Jesus knew that the cup wouldn't rest on him. He'd already told them, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'll be sorely treated, arrested, crucified, and then rise again after three days. So he knows that this cup of wrath is not going to remain in his hand. But what he also knows is he has to drink it fully. He has to drink that cup of, of God's wrath. And so you know it's not just the, the physical torment of the cross. Uh, one of the commentators put it this way. If Jesus suffered such incomparable agony simply in view of physical torture, simply in view of I don't want to be nailed to a cross. Nobody wants to be nailed to a cross. But the agony, the depth of his agony, he says, if he saw that, he was less heroic than his followers. The agony of our Lord must never be supposed to reflect upon his human heroism. It is rather proof of his divine atonement. So Jesus is looking towards the cross, and he doesn't want to be crucified. But more than that, he doesn't want to drink this cup. Because what the cup is, is, the, is his father's full wrath against sin. And he says, I can, I can stand the physical torture, but Lord, I, I can't bear to think of being alienated to you from you because of the sin of the people. But your wrath has to be dealt with. You don't just blink at sin and go, oh, it's no big deal. And so Jesus is looking towards that. And the way that he prays is, let it pass from me, let it go, if there's any way. But if there's not, then your will be done. So in the middle of this, in the middle of this fierce oppression of the prospect of what's coming, of God's wrath being poured out on Jesus, he still submits to his father and says, Lord, your will be done. It's not my will to do this, but it's your will, and so it's my will. So we'll do, we'll do it your way, but Lord, if there's any other way around this. Now, Jesus knew there was no other way around this. Remember when Satan tempted him? So let's, let's shortcut this, Jesus. We can cut off all of this suffering business. All you do is bow down to me. The kingdoms of the world have been given to me. Bow down to me, and I'll give them to you. And so Jesus knew there was no way around it. But that doesn't mean that he relished this idea of going to the cross and bearing his father's wrath. What it cost Jesus was separation from his father the anger of his father to become sin for us so that we could be the righteousness of God required that that sin be dealt with. And so the, the picture here is Jesus is going to take the cup that you were due. It, it's been filled up every time you've sinned. It's, and another drop has been put in. And it's filled to overflowing and it's foaming. And what Jesus is saying is I'm going to take this cup for my people and I'm going to drink it down so that they can be right with you. None of this is due me. I'm drinking it because of my people. I want to bring them to you. And so I have to drink their wine. I have to drink their wrath. I have to take it upon myself. If you think that hell is uncomfortable, it's how could a loving God create a hell for eternity? Look at Jesus at this moment. Does he look like he's facing 
an irritated God? A God who would never judge anybody? He is going to step in your place because hell is real. Because hell is God's righteous indignation and judgment upon sin for eternity. If you say that hell is only temporary, it's only for a little while, it's not that bad, what you've just done is you've diminished Jesus' suffering at this point. It doesn't make sense. But for him to bear the wrath that we're due, that's why you would see him fall to the ground and pray the way that he does. That's why he would pray, Father, if you're willing, remove this from me. And he's so weighed down by the burden of the sin that he must bear that his sweat becomes like drops of blood. Now, there's, there's, there's two ways to interpret this verse. It could be that the sweat became so thick on him it dripped to the ground like blood dripping. Or it could be that the, the emotional, intense stress of what he's facing caused his blood pressure to rise and capillaries burst and blood mixed with sweat and dripped off his body. Either one is true. Either one is possible interpretation. And doesn't both of them tell you something about the anguish that Jesus is facing? We don't have to land on one or the other. They're equally saying Jesus is under intense anguish because of this. He's not looking forward to the cross. He's not looking forward to the wrath. The promise in the midst of this is God heard him because God sent an angel from heaven to strengthen him. An angel comes to Jesus and ministers to him. I don't know what it means that he strengthened him. I don't think it meant it changed his batteries or, or, or something. I think he was there reminding him, God the Father loves you. You're doing this because the Father loves you, not because he hates you. He's, he's there ministering to Jesus to strengthen him, to hold him up. And then the verse says that he prayed even more earnestly because of that. Because he had been strengthened, he didn't go, oh, okay, good, and get up and walk away. He continued to pray more earnestly because of that. That's a pretty strong model of prayer. I, I don't think I have ever prayed to the point where my capillaries burst and blood dripped off my face. I, I, I don't know that I have felt anything that strongly, but I didn't have to face the prospect of God's wrath for other people. And so Jesus is praying. He spends his time praying. This is what he has to do before he goes to the cross. And now the last part is, will you do what you're commanded to do? Now earlier Jesus said, pray that you may not enter into temptation. He repeats almost exactly word for word when he, he comes to his disciples, he finds them asleep for sorrow, and he says again, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. It is almost exactly word for word, the same command. There's one word that is in Greek that doesn't always get brought out in English in the middle of that sentence called it, the word hina. And usually what that means is in order that. So um, Paul read from the NIV and it said, pray that, so that you won't enter into temptation. That's the purpose of the prayer, is this is how you will not enter into temptation. So that's the purpose clause. This is why Jesus is telling his disciples, excuse me, rise and pray so that you will not enter into temptation. Now, one of the things I wanted to comment on is it says that his disciple, he came to his disciples because he'd gone a stone's throw away. He comes back to his disciples, and he found them sleeping for sorrow. 
is how the, NI, uh, the ESV renders it, sleeping for sorrow. What sorrow were they suffering at this point? Were they suffering the same kind of sorrow that Jesus was because they knew he was going to go die? They didn't get it. He explained it to them before, and they didn't get it. They didn't understand what was about to happen. So what sorrow were they suffering from here? I think what they were suffering from is the sorrow of what they just were told at the Last Supper, which is there's one of you is going to betray me, and they're worried about that. And then they hear, Je- uh, Paul, I'm sorry, they hear Jesus tell Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And so I think if the disciples were like me, I would probably be sorrowful about me in my poor state, not noticing that my Savior is about to go and bear the wrath of God in my stead for me. So they're, they're sleeping for sorrow because somebody's going to betray him, and it might be me, and, and Peter's going to deny him three times, and isn't that terrible, and, and what was us? So this is why when Jesus looks at him, he says, rise and pray in order that you may not enter into temptation. Well, how do we not enter into temptation? Has, has anybody ever been tempted doing a diet right now. Let me tell you about temptation. <laughs> there was a cake across the hallway I'm not allowed to touch. Was that entering into temptation, just knowing that it was there? Was that entering into temptation? There's a difference between being tempted and entering into temptation. The Bible tells us Jesus was tempted in all ways like we are, and yet without sin. So it is possible to be tempted and to not sin. It's possible to be tempted and not enter into temptation. Because the Bible is pretty explicit about don't enter into temptation. Jesus taught us to pray. He said, our Father who is in heaven, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one or deliver us from evil. So there is being tempted, and then there is being led into temptation. And what Jesus is telling us here is he's saying, don't be led into temptation. Don't fall into it. Don't enter into it. So what does it mean if it's not just being tempted? What it means is, John Owen was really helpful on this. The men's group, we were reading um, these three works by John Owen. John Owen was a Puritan writer in the 1600s, so every sentence is about four paragraphs long and hard to get through but worth it. So I spent some time kind of redigesting what Owen was talking about as far as entering into temptation. And he said, what entering into temptation is not, first of all, like I said, is not feeling tempted. Entering into temptation is not even feeling tempted and falling for that sin. Entering into temptation is getting to this place in your life where that temptation rests with you. It lives with you. It affects how you look at everything that comes. The temptation to whatever your temptation is. So to fall into temptation is to be bathed in this temptation and allow it to begin to reshape how you think and how you understand the world. So you're thinking about what is tempting you constantly. So you may be tempted to pride. I'm pretty smart. I say some clever things once in a while. That may be a temptation. To fall into temptation then is to say constantly, well, I thought that was pretty clever. Even though you may not act out on it, you have now fallen into temptation because pride is now calling you constantly. It's beginning to reshape how you think and how you feel. 
So this is what Jesus is warning us about is he's saying, don't get to that place in your life. And the apostles need to know this right now because of what's coming. When Jesus is arrested, they're going to scatter. That's prophetic. God said, I will, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will flee. So they need to know that they need to be praying to not enter into temptation because their immediate response is going to be run. But that can't be the normal pattern of their life. When Jesus rises from the dead, he's going to commission them and send them out to the world to spread the good news of the gospel. And so run cannot be the normal pattern of their life. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. Resist that feeling that you have to flee because what's coming is going to be really hard. So this is how he could look to Peter and say, Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the cock crows this morning. But when you're restored, strengthen your brothers. Peter, don't enter into temptation. Even if you fall this one time, stand. And when you've been set free, turn and, and strengthen your brothers. Encourage your brothers that they may not enter into temptation also. So that's what he's getting at. Now, how do we do that? So don't enter into temptation. Go and be blessed. Have a great Sunday. Not falling into temptation. We need more than just being told not to. Well, the first thing is obvious. What did Jesus just say? Pray. Do you want to not fall into temptation? Pray. Do you want to make sure that you don't fall into temptation in the future? Keep praying. Now, that doesn't mean that temptation will never come your way, but what it means is, Lord, spare me from falling into that trap. Keep me out of that. The next step, I think, is to recognize temptation before you enter into it. The idea is you have to recognize it way back when it comes, when that first fleeting thought comes to you. Hey, that was pretty clever. I'm pretty smart. Okay, that's tempting. I'm not going to go there. So you recognize it at its beginning. And then you can avoid, you can make sure, gee, I don't want to turn that into a pattern. I don't want to turn that into a habit. So I recognize what I've done, and I'm not going to go that way. So recognize it early. The next thing is remember God's promises. God has some strong promises for you. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says that no temptation comes to you except what's common. And God will provide a way out. So when the thought, when the feeling, when the temptation comes, there is a way out. Look for it. God's promised you that. He's made that promise to you. And then the last one, and, and this one I want to branch into another little bit of scripture for, is what has happened here is Jesus has taken the cup of God's wrath and drained it. So when you are tempted, when, when temptation comes your way, what you don't have to fear is if I give in to this, now God's wrath is going to fall on me. Jesus drank the cup so you don't have to. Jesus emptied the cup so that you will not have to. So when, when Jesus is here praying and blood is dropping off his face and he's looking at what's coming and he says, Lord, I don't want to enter into this, that is qualitatively, quantitatively different than any martyr ever prayed. If you read the stories of the martyrs, they would say things like, all you can do is burn my body and may it set England on flame. Why could they do that? Why would Jesus be so intimidated to face his execution and the other martyrs not be? Because Jesus was facing God's wrath. 
The martyrs knew they would not face God's wrath. The worst you can do to me is burn my body. And then that's it. Because Jesus has taken the cup of God's wrath and drank it in my behalf. The cup I face is empty because Jesus is my Savior. So when temptation comes to us, one of the things you don't have to do is run and hide. Because if your father's angry at you, and, and parents will know this well, right? You've told the child, don't open that. You've told them repeatedly, don't open that. You leave them alone for 10 minutes, and what's the first thing they do? They open that. Now, do they come to you and show you, hey, look, I opened it. Why? Because they know you're mad at them. I told you specifically, don't open that. And what they have to face is your wrath. And so the first reaction is, oops, I shouldn't open that, hide it, put it someplace else. Make sure nobody knows about it. Because they're trying to avoid your wrath. When we're tempted, and when we even give in to temptation, we don't have to fear the Father. We can go to God directly and say, Lord, you told me not to open it. I opened it. And I'm really sorry. And what you don't have to fear is God going, zap. I hate you. I told you what to do. You didn't do it. I hate you. You don't have to fear that. And so I think that takes a lot of the pressure off facing those temptations because you know it's not totally either I don't do it or I'm dead, but I can fight as hard as I can, and if I don't do it perfectly, I know my Father still loves me. It's liberating to have Jesus drink that cup for you because now you're free to face the temptation and go, it isn't all or nothing. I can do my best here, and then my next time will be even better. So that's how we face temptation. How we flee from temptation is because we know that Jesus has taken the burden of what it's going to cost if we fail. And then the point is we look at that and we go, I didn't want to do that. I did it. I'm sorry, Lord. Help me not do that again because I don't want to offend you. I love my father and I want my father to be happy with me. I want him to be pleased with me. I don't fear you kicking me out of the family. But at the same time, I don't like doing things that you don't want me to do. And that's another way that you can face temptation and push it off and say, no, I don't have to give in to that. Now, where did I get that one from? I think Hebrews 12 sums it up pretty well. Um, Hebrews 11 is what we call the hall of faith. The author goes through and he lists one person after another after another throughout redemptive history. And they said they lived by faith and they lived by faith. And Noah built an ark by faith. And Abraham offered his son by faith. And all of these people lived by faith. And even these people who got sawn in half and burned at the stake, they lived by faith. And this is how they made it. And then in chapter 12, he says, now, that's really interesting. Here's how it applies. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, all of these people have testified that living by faith is what will work with God. This is how you approach God. This is how you're fabled to God. Since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses to God's faithfulness, let us also lay, away, lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. So the command here is to lay aside every weight and every sin. How? Looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, 
who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. Doesn't that sound like what he's doing here? Enduring the cross, not embracing it, not loving it, not saying bring it on, enduring it, enduring the cross, despising the shame. Lord, if there's any other way, and yet he is seated at the right hand. So here's the picture, faith. All of these people throughout redemptive history have lived by faith, lived by faith. You have a cloud of witnesses testifying to that so that you can put off every encumbrance and every weight and every sin that clings to you by looking to Jesus, by considering Jesus, by saying, Jesus bore the weight of that sin. I don't have to bear it. Putting that away and saying, no, I'm going to go where Jesus went. Even though he endured the cross, even though he despised the shame, he's now seated at the right hand of the Father. God has proven in Jesus Christ conclusively that he has put your sin away because Jesus is not currently in hell. Jesus is sitting right smack next to the Father in a position of authority. That's how you know this has been dealt with. The author of Hebrews continues, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. Jesus, in his resistance to sin, is shedding blood now in the garden. Jesus, in his resistance to sin, will shed blood on the cross. And you haven't gotten to that point yet. I was joking earlier that I've never prayed or been so distressed that I sweated like that. The author says, yeah, right, exactly. Isn't that true? Look to Jesus then. Consider him. He has done this for you. You should be that disturbed by sin. It should really bug you. It is an offense against a cosmic holy, perfect God who created everything, and it should bug you deeply. And it doesn't. You haven't resisted sin to the point of shedding blood. This is why it's tremendously good news that Jesus would go and pray to his Father, let this cup pass from me. But if it can't, if there's no other way for us to save these people, then your will be done. So we know he took the cup. We know he did. Because he asked the Father to take it away, and he didn't. And so the cup that we were due has now been taken away. And so now what the author of Hebrews is telling us is looking at God's faithfulness, his, his history, repeated history of demonstrated faithfulness to put away our sin by faith, now you can run the race. Now you can say, no, I'm trusting Jesus has dealt with this for me. And so now these the sins that entangle me, I'm free to put them off and start chasing after. And when I stumble, it's okay. It's not the end of the, the race for me. So Jesus drank that cup of God's wrath for his people so that God's reaction to our sin will not be wrath, but discipline. There's a difference. Instead of your father killing you because you did what he told you not to, now you get your father teaching you don't do that. I said not to do that because of this. And so because Jesus drank the wrath, now our response to our, our, our Father's response to our sin is not wrath, but discipline. 
and training and teaching. Let's try it again. That's not how you do it. Do it this way. That's how we go in and fight temptation. That's how we, we turn away from the temptation. So, so the picture again, the three pieces were Judas is going to do what Judas is going to do, and Jesus knew it. And he entered into his first step of praying that the Father would take a different way. His first step was obedience. His first step to the cross was the first step into Gethsemane. He went where he knew he would be found. So yes, we know Judas is going to betray him, and Jesus knew that. He didn't start this prayer in the upper room at the end of the the, uh, Passover meal. He started it in the garden where he could be found. So his first step is obedience. His second step is, let's not do this. If there's any other way, let's not do this. And his third step is, your will be done. And those three things, his first step of obedience, his second step of prayer, and his third step of, your will be done, take the burden off of us. They lead us to the point where we can run the race unencumbered by the sin that so easily entangles us, that so easily leads us away. This picture is going to be really important when we get to what comes next week, which is the betrayal and then the arrest. Because we have to understand this point to make sense out of the other things. Otherwise, we may make the mistake of focusing on the fact that Jesus got beaten. Jesus got nailed to a cross. And forget what happened that we couldn't see, which is the weight of our sin is placed on him. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. We'll get, to, we'll get into that. I, I didn't want to preach that sermon now. <laughs> we'll get into that when we get to the cross. But this is the preparation. This is Luke preparing us for when we get there so we'll understand what had happened. Let's close in prayer. Lord, um, we live in a fallen and a broken world, and temptation is all around us. Temptation to not trust you. Temptation to not believe you. Temptation to take the shortcut to get the immediate satisfaction. And so, Lord, when, when temptations come, I pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you would wake us all up at that moment and recognize what that is so that we will not fall into temptation. And, Lord, would you lead us not into temptation? Would you lead us away in a different direction from that? And, Lord, we know that we don't have to go that way because Jesus has borne our burden. He's taken the the, the weight that is drawing us in that direction. He's emptied that cup. And so, Lord, we thank you for your discipline, a loving Father who cares. I pray that we would see temptation as that, that call to disobey our loving Father. And then when we do, that we would see your reaction not as hatred, not as throwing out, but, Lord, as discipline, the discipline of a loving Father. And, Lord, this is all because of the cross of Jesus. So we're thankful for for what he's done on our behalf. And, Lord, I thank you for the song that we sang, um, that you would show us Jesus, that we would see more of Christ through your word, through the preaching of your word. Thank you for being faithful to that, for answering our prayer. In Christ's name, we've asked and we continue to ask. Amen.